This is Jan Cox, talk number 2519, recorded May 9th, 2000. My writing. At the graduation rehearsal, the valid dictatorial Torian said these words. I have a stranger living in my head. And it is the stranger who just spoke the word I in the sentence, I have a stranger in my head. End quote. It would be difficult to say what his classmates' reactions were to this statement in that he and his classmates are all the same person. And if he was living the reality of what he said as he was saying it, then he was awake and not actually there anyway. And if he was not at the moment experiencing the reality behind his words, then he was still just another sleeping stiff deserving of no particular notice anyway. But yet, what a speech. Surely worthy of a rerun, said he. I have a stranger living in my head. And it is the stranger who just spoke the word I in the sentence, I have a stranger in my head. And I can tell you this, when the instant reality of what he said hits you, you've graduated. Got it, so... When I put it that way, it sounds so simple, even I almost understand it. <laughs> I sure do want to awaken. I sure I'm asleep, tired of being asleep. And then to realize, wait a minute. <laughs> the voice that just said I'm tired of being asleep. <laughs> My voice, by God. No, never mind. I don't upset people on Monday. I know some of you still have the flu. <laughs> A boy asked his father, which is the greatest interference in the realization of our goal? And the father said, the lack of clearly understanding what the goal is. And the lad said, no, no, you didn't let me finish. Which is the greater interference in the realization of our goal? The words of others or the words of ourselves? The elder seemed to ponder this question for a bit, then said, does it really make any difference? Then it was the kid's turn to fall silent and apparently reflective. And finally he replied, no, I guess ultimately it doesn't. But right now it seems to, to which the father responded. In that case, it can presently be a matter of potential significance to you, and you should then pursue the question yourself to a profitable end. Take it as your, your new line of investigation. Why does there seem to be a difference between the effect other people's words have on me and the effect on me of my own? For a man with a true passion for the goal, any question that strikes him as personally interesting is worthy of investigation. And I might add, the further the matter is from the current question's common demand, the more promising they are for the few. Uh, I'd like to reinforce that. I mentioned it once a few months ago. I'll leave it to you to find the significance of it, the practical, but the further a question is that strikes you, or an insight, a notion, just a possibility, maybe it seems to you that you just suddenly, it strikes you that, ooh, maybe you're observing something that goes on in life, and you think, ah, everybody always thinks that's blah, 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 
But to me, I just realized it could be blah, blah, blah. The further it is from any common notion concerning that matter, the better off you are, the closer you are to the reality of it. Plus, I don't know whether I ever get back to it, but I, I've gotten a great deal of use and would recommend it to you, the question the kid posed to his father to start with. Well, the father actually expanded it and turned it on him was asking, what difference does it make? The kid is already curious, in perhaps a simplistic way. But anyway, the old man said, consider, why does there seem to be a difference between the words other people say, the effect they have on us, and then the effect our own words have? Now, I was talking about in a different way last time, and the time before that I mentioned it, as to why people look externally for directions, and I mean verbally. We're talking about words. Look at the millions or billions of people that claim that they believe in life after death and they point to the basis of their belief as being their religion, which is a bunch of words, whatever their holy writings be. You must know the answer to this, I'm about to ask you, but could an ordinary man, man tell himself I think after you die, you live again. And then go, wow! Is that, could that be true? Now, I won't carry it any further and make it ridiculous. In other words, he wouldn't necessarily then go on with a conversation. But a conversation might ensue when he is first confronted with this, when it's based on the words of another, that the first time he goes to a priest or is in a synagogue or here's the holy man of their tribe say that if you live an upright life according to the tribe's mores that after you die you actually live another life <coughs> billions of people I could say almost everybody they just had to be somebody that got started but let's just say that all ordinary people the only way that they can profess and believe that they believe in a life after death for instance is because somebody else said it Or I put it to you another way, I still say that everyone knows what they should do. <laughs> everyone knows what's going on. But a person will go and pay $100 an hour, or whatever it is nowadays, to a counselor or a psychiatrist to ask them what to do. And it's nothing, well, they'll go to a doctor. They'll go pay a weight clinic. And they'll say, look at me, I feel terrible. The more weight I put on, the harder it is to breathe, the less energy I have, what should I do? And the doctor says, don't eat so much and you'll lose weight and you'll feel better. And they go, wait a minute, let me write this down. <laughs> That's what it amounts to. I picked obviously a pretty easy shot, but people are doing the same thing to go to a psychiatrist. It's just that in the ordinary world, people take it to be a more complex subject to go to someone and say, I've been depressed all my life. And the psychiatrist says, well, if you're prepared to undergo rigorous analysis and got plenty of time to devote to it, uh, I think that we can probably have a great impact on your depression. You know, be $200 in advance and lay down there and tell me, talk to me. All right, people assume because somebody it takes 12 years to be a psychiatrist 
and it doesn't take any years to open a weight cl loss clinic. <laughs> but why does, some, why does anybody go to a doctor or a weight loss clinic and say, I put on 50 pounds in last year and I feel a lot worse than I do this time last year. What do you think? They know what it is. Or somebody goes and says, I'm coughing all the time and spitting up blood. The doctor says, quit smoking. Are you sure? You, you sure? <laughs> well, I would say that's, that's what I would do. That would be my first line. <laughs> I've lost all my jobs. My wife left me and I'm living in the street. Uh, I'm drinking every day. I drink until I pass out, which is normally about 10.30 in the morning. <laughs> what do you think? Now, I'm picking out silly shit, but everybody does this constantly. They go to a friend. They say, let me tell you my problem. The way my wife's... They will listen to someone else. They will go seek out someone else. They will pay someone else. But the point is, they will go seek out somebody else. And as this father was pointing out to his son, and I never have seen anyone... There's got to have been people that realize it, but I have never seen this arise in the history of ordinary man's intellectual inquiries. There is a distinct difference, and all you need is you to check it. There is a distinct difference in the influence, the impact. Not all the time, of course, because everything you hear doesn't even have an impact on you. It doesn't even register. But under the proper conditions, to you, the words of other people have a completely different effect than your own words do. This is just a simple fact. No one pays any attention to it. Not that I expect them to, but a person can tell himself, I should quit drinking, I should quit drinking. Tell himself day after day. And then maybe finally go to a priest or a rabbi or a counselor or a doctor and tell them the story about how much they're drinking. The doctor says, listen, you've got to quit drinking. And the person says, well, you know, I kind of figured that. I mean, somebody's drinking, as I said, and they're passing out every day at 10 o'clock. They say, well, you know, I sort of figured that, but I wanted to come see you. Okay. Well, what the hell the doctor cares? Another, you know, 50 bucks or whatever a short office visit is. Why is that? Do I have to go into more examples? They just become sillier and sillier, I guess. <clears throat> this is just a fact. And it's a fact among common people talking over no serious subject. People can be drinking coffee and talking politics. And one person say, well, I think blah, 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 blah. And they say something about some legislation that's going on, pending legislation or some current event. And they give their opinion on it. And the other person, or you, you'll listen and it can have an impact. It can have an effect on you that your own words wouldn't have had. So perhaps you could have read the same story he was talking about in the paper that morning and the voice in your own head as you were reading it was making some comment like, well, who are they trying to fool? Somebody introduced that bill because they're simply in the pocket of some oil lobbyist. That's no reason that they're not trying to help the consumer. Huh, I know that. And you go on. And two hours later, you're at lunch with someone and the subject comes up with the oil prices and the new legislation and someone makes a comment even similar to yours or just the opposite, it doesn't matter, and it will have a different effect on you. Hearing the words come from another human, when you know it, well, I'll leave it at that. I'm telling you, that has far-reaching, shall I say, ramifications. No. It's too close to a bestiality statement. 
lamifications in so it doesn't seem so aggressive. Which remind me, I've been aiming to change dogmatic into kittymatic. Well, dogmatic's right in your face. You know, a dogmatic statement, which it came from dogma, I guess, but you know, there's a priest saying, if you're not a good Catholic, you'll go to hell. And that's dogmatic. But see, kittymatic would be a priest would say, uh, I have good reason to believe, or other people. I've been told that there are people who say that it's very likely that if you're not a good Catholic, then you, you can reap less than a full Catholic reward after you die. Now, see, that's... <laughs> I guess religious dogma for wussies. <laughs> Which come to think about, well, never mind. I'm sure if the religious people of the world had been listening to me all these years, I'd be dead by now. Never mind. Back to page three, or on to page three. An area worthy of a lively investigator's attention is how normal, in-line, one-at-a-time sequential thinking gives men a mental picture of life that is sequential and is not actually present. Whereas momentary reflection on the matter makes any reasonable person aware of the fact that life is not sequential. Everything is going on at the same time. The brain's sequential production of thought serve well science. This goes on for another page, but I, I gotta stop. Here's another one I continue to love every time I think of it. Uh, here is another mystical system in itself. If you'll notice, what we call the mind, thoughts are composed of words, and for you to have what to you is a thought, then to you it must be reasonable, must be coherent. Even if once you think it, you wonder, well, I wonder if it's true. It had to be a coherent sentence to you for you to even question its validity. Words are only coherent when they are in sequence. No matter what your language, no matter that from language to language the rules of grammar vary, whatever language you're in, thought, the mind, works sequentially. And all you've got to do is consider for a second, anyone with any intelligence, you consider for a second, and you know that life is not sequential. With ordinary people, it does no harm, and with us, it does no harm, except it can trip you up forever and ever and ever. It is just one of the things that will help keep your mind chasing itself, to keep your thoughts deluding themselves. Because as you think, you think in sequence, and you picture life in sequence. You are overlaying on the life you're leading, below the cortical level, the very life you're leading, you're overlaying a sequential map on it that damn does, does not exist. It's not there. And again, I repeat, all it takes is a momentary reflection, and any sane person realizes that just for a moment. I can make them surely see it. And then it's gone again. Because then they'll be daydreaming, perhaps. They'll be thinking themselves about what I just pointed out, why they didn't see it before, and whether that sounds familiar to something else that they read. When was it? I was in college. I see, was it Schopenhauer? No, not S. It was... Uh, Maybe, 
Do you understand? They have gone back and they are laying, you know what an overlay is, on top of life and making life appear to be sequential. Uh, how's this for a picture? I remember one hit me the first time that this hit me good. See if this, don't wait, there's not really a moral. I'm just showing you what I just got to saying. Uh, you're introduced to a potential profitable business deal. And the other party says, uh, you know, it's contingent on me pulling this off of these other people and I'll know by noon tomorrow. And if I can, I don't make up too many details, but he says, uh, I'll cut you in on it if it works out at noon, but you're gonna have to get over here as soon as possible because I'm gonna have to close the deal with them. They're not gonna hang around, say I agree to it at noon. It works out and I'll step out of the room to go to the bathroom and I'll call you, but you're gonna have to be down here at their office before 12.30 because I can't stall around any longer than that and I'm gonna give them a story about your, you know, my partner, blah, blah, blah. So, let's say that that's the night before. You get up the next morning, you wake up and it's eight o'clock and he said it would be somewhere between 11 and 12, no later than 12. Your life is running in sequence in your head. From the time you get up, of course it's doing it probably, you're dreaming about it, so let's assume it's a real big deal, potentially. But then you get up, and then your thoughts are running of all kinds of possibilities of what's going on with him and these people. And you're going around, you're fixing coffee, and watching at the, looking at the clock. And all this is sequential, and you're thinking, well, maybe I'll go out for a, a run. Do I have enough time? And you're picturing life is sequential, and everything is going on at once, and you're even picturing that he is involved with the sequence. I wonder if he's over at the office yet. I wonder if those other people got in from out of town. What if they didn't get in? And all of this in your thinking is an overlay that's making all of this appear to be something sequential. And it's not. Maybe I didn't, didn't sound so good and clear now that I put it in words. Right now you could be thinking about meeting somebody later at nine o'clock and you're sitting here Wondering if I get through in time. You're wondering if they'll be there on time. And you don't under, nobody thinks about the fact that none of this is happening in sequence. Yeah. You're not going to meet them at 9 o'clock. Yeah, I know you are, but that's not what's going on. They're somewhere right now doing something. <laughs> You're here right now doing something. Not to mention another 6 billion people, another 16 trillion planets, another 16 trillion to the 10 atoms in the universe. I think I exaggerated, but lots. <laughs> and it's all going on simultaneously. Now, let me finish reading it. <clears throat> the brain's sequential production of thought serves well science and man's beneficial manipulation of his physical environment. But beyond these inarguable important basic aspects, such as in thoughts attempting to comprehend and manipulate themselves, sequential thinking is a bust. Oh, it can turn out verbally. Oh, sequential thinking can turn out logical books on the matter and compile endless statistics and case studies on the subject. But, even, but an even semi-objective view of this activity makes perfectly clear that nothing resembling success has ever been achieved, nor in fact has any progress been made. That is, in seeing 
that life is sequential. Even though you can make it verbally sound like it is. But without question, sequential thinking has led to an ever-increasing scientific understanding of the brain's anatomy and physiology. But never do even the contemporary experts in this area understand their own mind. Not that such is their actual interest, but I note this. To highlight again the mind's native disability to look at and comprehend directly its own essence and its inherent lack of curiosity as to why this be so. This entire matter refers solely, this entire matter rests solely in the hands of the few secret investigators who, throughout the history of conscious man, have been internally engaged in a relentless and passionate study of the case. Well, I'm not sure that same time if ever to press on with that, but I'm telling you, it would shock you out of your ordinary state just to continually contemplate, reflect, remember the fact that your life, of course everybody's, but your life is not sequential. Even though we'll assume that you have things that you are going to do later today and you're already dreaming about things you have to do tomorrow, maybe even next week, but even tonight, you may be even, you're thinking about, uh, you've got to get gas in the car, you'll never make it home, and you wonder if that station that you pass most nights, or that you pass coming here tonight, will it be open? Do they close? What time do they close? Are they open? But you picture that this is going on in sequence. So let's see, if I leave here at 1030, uh, and you're picturing all of this, and it gives a certain feeling to life. Well, it's already there to thinking. But it reinforces this feeling to life that your life is running along a sequential line. That there's a string of possibilities, string of probabilities, maybe including some inevitabilities, and that you're going along this line with one thing happening after another, and you must prepare for it. And what I was trying to show you with that example I made up is just think about the people. Just consider the people involved in your line, your sequential line that you're picturing that's what's going on tonight or next week, they're the people having a similar picture, but both of you hang the picture at the same time, and you and the rest of the universe is whirling around and doing whatever the damn universe does all at the same time. And it is not one thing happening after another. And then all you gotta do is fall back into thought, and your thoughts say, well, that's not true. I guess you mean well, but that's not true. One thing happens, then something else happens. Subtle is not the word for it. It's just the inherent nature of the mind. That it works in a manner, its materials, words, work in sequence. Blah, 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 blah. If you blah, 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 then blah, blah, blah. And if you just stay with that, then it's... it's it's unassailable. And somebody says, well, if I drive down the street and I stop that store, then I can buy some gas if they're open. And I can't say that's not true. And you can say, well, I got my car, I drove, I got to the station, I got out, I pumped gas, I paid, and I've got gas, and I went home. That was a sequence, if you say so. I tell you what, if you see fast that, you can't stay asleep. It'll interfere every time you think about it. It will directly interfere with what's going on in the head, the, the living dream world, the daytime dream world in the head. 
because all of those are in sequence, even about the past. Even if they run backwards, you go back so far and then you run forward again, it's in sequence about what happened to you, whatever the complaint is you have, whatever it is you wish you have done, the stairway talk. Who's going to learn that French term? One day a father said to his momentarily frustrated offspring, quote, it is the nature of a dog to chase after anything that moves. And after a slight pause, the lad replied, but I still don't like it. And his elder said, and that is your nature, not to like it. Then there was a longer pause until the boy finally said, I see where this is going. You've now got my dog chasing the words of your comment concerning how dogs by nature chase anything that moves. And the old man clapped his hands with glee, exclaiming, Well, if you see that, then why aren't you awake? A most disturbing question, which, as the boy began pondering it, assured his continuing incapacitation. A certain investigator ran a kennel on the side, and his champion dog went by the name of Lancelot's Grand Indifference. Ask yourself, what type of special moron holds personal opinions regarding the inherent nature of things? Does any reasonably intelligent, <laughs> does any reasonably intelligent man, does any reasonably intelligent homo sapien have strong feelings about the fact that trees put out leaves? Or that water is often wet? <laughs> or that the earth spins? There is a stranger in everyone's head, and he longs to recognize himself. And until he does, he is nothing but a mad, opinionated dog chasing his own tail. See how the voice in your head likes that? No one's voice in their head likes that. Who do you think of? <laughs> Sorry. To his father, so said one lad, as regards the continuing claim of many that the life of man is an illusion, what say ye? And the elder replied, man's physical life is real enough, but beyond that he shrugged, what can I tell you? I'd say that's the words of a true mystic. Question, why is there no totally satisfying description of exactly what the goal of this activity is? One valid response, because a thing in search of itself, who has never seen itself, cannot, of course, describe itself. What a great question. The very kind whose own internal essence has the power to answer itself and answer the investigator of the question and awaken the investigator of the question. If you don't do something new, you can't think something new. And if you don't think something new, you can't do something new. Don't you just hate those kinds? I mean, it sews you up when, once the sentence starts. You think, well, I get out of the end. One investigator's business slogan is, I will point out things going on in your mind that even your own won't talk to you about. A boy asked his father, to a common ear, what does it take to sound like you're awake? 
And he replied, talk like you're awake and use words that make you seem so. And momentarily the lad asked, I'll just bet that you intend for me to see how this might apply to my own personal in-head efforts to get my mind to awaken my mind. And as the old, and as you could probably predict, the old man just smiled. I guess that's supposed to be just smiled. Well, once I had mistyped it to start with, I thought, why not go with it? Maybe it was fate that made me misspell smiled into smealed. Now look back. Watch the kid looked around at his old man when he you know, asked him the question. I just bet you're trying to get me to do so and so. And rather than answer, he looked up and the old man just smealed. And the kid thought, wait a minute. I bet he intended me to think that that was just smiled, but he was actually just smealing. I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to actually come to a firm concussion. I guess that was supposed to be a conclusion. Back to the reading. One day as they were again discussing the matter of the great investigation, a father said to his son, just because you have a phone doesn't mean you have to answer it. And the boy said, I bet you're saying that just because thoughts come calling in my mind doesn't mean I have to go ahead and think them. To which the elder responded, no, I just mean that having a phone doesn't mean you have to answer it. <laughs> the younger pondered his father's response for several seconds, then said, okay, but it's obvious to anyone that just having a phone doesn't require that you answer it every time it rings. Anyone knows that. You are surely saying something else. And finally the father replied, words are words are words. Why should my saying that just having a phone doesn't mean you have to answer it cause you to answer the comment by either agreeing to it or disagreeing to it or believing it was metaphorical or whatever? It's impossible for someone without an understanding of the mind to realize that words are just words. Words are words are words are words are words are words are words, words, words infinitum. Now, I'll tell you now that that is what the great investigation ultimately re reveals. So, do you realize how foolish that makes anything presently said about the endeavor? And if not until you do, here's my clue. Just having a phone doesn't mean that you have to think about its ringing as either a positive or a negative occurrence in your life. Words are just words, ringing is just ringing, and thoughts are just thoughts. And anything the sky might say about clouds is at best poetic minutia. Look to the sky, my boy. Not at clouds, which was his version of my look at the box, not the trinkets in it. A prominent peculiar fact that should clue men in, but seldom does, is that whenever thoughts think and speak about themselves, it is never directly, but almost, but almost always a step removed. But always a step removed. Concerns an example of what an eminent neuropsychologist says about his latest book. Quote, I have covered the full written history of man's attempt to understand his own mind from the earliest known myths, which make metaphorical comment on his consciousness of life to the latest scientific discoveries concerning the apparent connection between the mind and the brain and taking into full account 
the wide range of varying views, theories, and suppositions regarding what the mind actually is and does from the vantage point of philosophers, theologians, artists, poets, and anyone else who has verbally contributed to the profitable way to which our ongoing study, or rather I should say our ongoing attempt to study that most fascinating and elusive of creatures, man's mind, end quote. This is not one man's mind studying the mind, but rather a mind studying the words that other men's minds spoke regarding their interest in studying the mind. <laughs> you lose the threads of the investigation if you merely pass this off as stupidity or effort gone errant. For as common as it is, what it unnoted reveals is the mind's inherent disability to look at itself at sufficient length to ever recognize itself for what it is. The areas of the brain responsible for the movement of feet and fingers are fully aware of what they do. Not so with the areas of the brain responsible for thoughts. It has about thinking. Leave it to the few, this arrangement, to undo. I know I brought up, or you probably think I brought up exactly the same thing before, but I thought by now that you might be able to get a wider view of it after the kinds of things I had of late been trying to point your attention toward. I don't bring it up to make fun of it. That's not the point. I could do that 50 years ago. But here it is. It goes on. You're surrounded by it constantly. A man, in the preface of his book, we could hear the preface of the book and think, well, I might be interested in that. This whole new field, just what struck me since they have this fairly new field, cognitive neuroscience, the final, as some of them are calling it, the final marriage, the proper, the long for proper marriage between psychology and neurology, to finally bridge that too long ill-formed gap between, or dichotomy between mind and body or even brain and mind. But then the man goes on for 500 pages. I just made up kind of a condensed preface or a review of the book. But then, and it's presented, uh, that's part of his claim to validity, is that he not only has a degree in neurology or, and psychology, let's say, he's not only written 10 other books, but he has taken 10 years out of his life to prepare for this one. And he strings out in footnotes and mentions in the preface how he has considered everything from the earliest Sumerian or Egyptian writings on man's mind as it, he now interprets the myths, the religious myths to be that they were actually subtle or unrecognized comments in Greek mythology that all that had to do with man's unconscious. And he takes a full survey. There's no doubt it was, if you want to look at it this way, an intellectual tour de force. But the man did everything in the world but what? Study the mind. And why? Not because he was stupid. The mind can think about anything, and it can believe that it thinks about thinking. And evidently, only a small handful of people ever realize that that is an illusion. Under any ordinary conditions, thoughts or the mind can, well, let's say thoughts, because without thoughts, there is no mind, but thoughts cannot think about themselves. 
And if, you said, if I said that to an ordinary person, or to you under ordinary conditions, if you didn't watch it, but ordinary people's mind will reject it out of hand. But that's ridiculous. They could immediately, if we were staying in a bookstore, they could immediately, or a library, they could point to the numerous, numerous volumes written all the way from the fields of philosophy into the more scientific areas concerning the mind. That there have been hundreds of thousands of books written, probably by thousands, or surely approaching a thousand fairly well-known authors all the way from poets, uh, fiction writers, mythologists, anthropologists, theologians, philosophers, psychologists, writing on the human mind. And the person would just, they would just point to them, or they point to the history of it and look at me like I was an idiot. And not one of them concerns what I just said. Because not one of the people, no offense, not attacking the writers of the books, no ordinary man's thoughts can contemplate themselves. Thoughts do not study themselves. And when they think they do, they're studying the words of other people who said that they were studying thoughts. Everybody stays, at the very best, everyone stays one step away from what's going on. Everybody that studies thought, as they say, stays right outside the walls around that city. Everybody stays one step removed. They stay one... Well, surely you know what I'm saying. We could track it back again to Adam, speaking mythologically or metaphorically. But after that, no one studies... No one's thought studies thought. Well, the reason I pick on this again... Uh, is it helped me in a way, and I can't believe it wouldn't help you, to realize the full impact of this, that it's not an assault on psychology or life, but to realize that this is a fact, and that you live in a dream of believing otherwise. That your thoughts believe that there have been people studying thoughts, that you read about it. You don't. It is truly, from my view, it is the only unnatural practice there is. Well, rather than a few French tricks in the bedroom, I don't want to. But anyway, <laughs> other than, it's the only unnatural act. I find it, man, I shouldn't say it. I was going to say it's somewhere just this, just this side of being able to fly under your own arm power. I feel safe in giving my personal assurance that it will give you a very useful and meaningful and substantial jolt when you see that head on. Of course it might be somewhat, I guess I should warn you of this, because you realize that after however old you are, and whatever you consider that a lifetime of, you might say for the last 30 years of giving serious reflection to all of this and waking up and being asleep, and to suddenly be confronted with the fact that you, know, you spent 30 years wasting your time. That is not true, I always say that. You spent 30 years involved with an effort that was misnamed. How's that? Does that sound better? <laughs> he smelled. <laughs> For you people on tape, I was smelling when I said that. <laughs> Here, would you hold this? <laughs> I beg your pardon. 
It is, well, I've got to also tell you that it's highly liberating. Or if you prefer, it's like a three-legged race. And you're the ground. And the three legs is, you're absolutely mortified that you didn't realize this over the last 30 years. The other leg is, you think, well, shit. And the third leg, the big fat one, the one that Groove Holmes learned how to play the lower keyboard of a Hammond B3 <laughs> under misguided effort. The third big fat leg is, what a relief. Because then anything that pops to mind, as long as you can stay coherent yourself, anything that pops to mind after that, you can just consider it's just, it's Looney Tunes. It's the soundtrack to the Three Stooges. Or if you don't like that, it's Mozart. Point is, it's a trifle. It means nothing. It's entertainment. How about this? I never put it this crudely. Thoughts don't get it. Which is double-barreled. I assume most of you know that kind of colloquial thoughts don't get it means thoughts are not what you need. Thoughts are not the proper approach. But that's not how I actually meant it. What I meant was thoughts don't get it. In the literal, well, still kind of colloquial, that thoughts will never understand what's going on. And in a sense, thoughts can understand everything in the universe that they think about. Not that they fully do. But as far as they're concerned, they can make sense out of anything that they want to think about, that they can come up with useful. Thoughts don't get it. That's a great relief, especially to all of us, you know, real intelligent people with, you know, IQs up in 100 and, you know, well, over 100, the point. When you get into three digits, I mean, it's kind of, you know, first, well, I don't go, never mind. That made me quit smiling to think about that. <laughs> what I started to say was, the more thoughtful you think you are and the more intelligent you think you are, and you might be. That's why I was really going to go into I was going to say, that's when it's really a bracing. It's better than aftershave lotion when you've and been shaving yourself with a beaver. And you're throwing, <laughs> throwing that alcohol. It's even more refreshing than that. It's realized as intelligent as I am, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's been fun. I prefer being intelligent, I think, than to be a moron. At least a, cl at least a clinically classifiable moron. But I think well, I'm glad I'm this intelligent and well-read. But to realize, okay, it's been fun, but it didn't mean shit. <laughs> but God, it was fun. I had to do something, right? And then you think, yeah, keep on, you know. <laughs> well, hey, if you don't prop yourself up, who is, right? Well, sometimes a life insurance salesman will. Well, or the business. A bit longer. Uh, by the way, when can we be expecting another payment? <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's anybody, I never realized there's anybody that's got a clear grasp of the idea of debt and credit. There's got to be hospitals to look down at what you're in there for, and then they don't. It's not just a mechanical thing about, well, call up. You know, it's not like a car lot or, you know, call up everybody that's behind their payments once a month on, you know, one of these mechanical machines, get them on the phone and done them. The hospital looks down and go, 
We better call that man once an hour. <laughs> Back to the reading. When the brain's mental memory is a benefit to ordinary man, while the brain's mental memory is a benefit to ordinary life, for those seeking the goal it is otherwise, in that it enables words to cling to your mind as the smell of death does to a corpse. Uh, this, to me, I wrote it on a different page, but it's tied still to sequential thinking, if you can see the connection, that mental memory, while it is a benefit, we could not operate in the ordinary world. Man would not be man without memory to rely on. We could not, quote, think without memory. You simply can't. But for people like us, what I was saying was that it has an effect besides the salubrious one, that it enables words to cling to you like the smell of death does to a corpse. On with reading. It's not enough that your thoughts can get stuck to an endless number of other thoughts and be dragged all around the universe, but on top of that, you're urged to constantly recall the incidents. Here's a simple fact, perhaps of no, or little practical use initially, but here it is nonetheless. No memory, no sleep. And you can't have memory without it be sequential. In fact, notice this. The outstanding memories, I would suggest, submit to you with people, are the ones that are most negative and amongst those, the ones that are most passionately negative, that is, people who have mistreated you, an incident wherein somebody really stuck it to you unjustly, undeservedly, in the back, one that you have never been able to forget, and it just pops up at odd times, but throughout a number of years. Notice how striking in your memory is the sequence of events. The da 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 Like a mad little man with a drummer behind him or playing his own drums, marching from here to there. That all when you went there and did you know such and such a decent deed and you'd no sooner done it than he went ba da da pulled out that allegorical knife and stabbed me within minutes after I had just Taken up for him, just saves his hide. And then he did this to me. There's no ambiguity. There's no winding around from a sequence of events. No accounting for the fact that everything, as cosmologists say, in the fucking universe was going on at the same time that this was going on. Not to mention everything in the same bar, everything in that same town, in that same city, that same state, that same country, that same planet. But da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. When one man began to see the life he led in his head as being a fictionalized version of the one he actually led, he was initially pleased at how nourished he was by the notion. But later, he refined the picture and began to see the affair as a kind of contrarious Romana clay. The reverse, in fact, of a Romana clay. I brought this up Friday. I was just going to ad lib it to you, and I thought about it driving home. For those of you that were here, I read a news item, and I talked myself about the fact 
that if you tried in a certain way, not just to see that I was correct, but I find it of real benefit to realize that what goes on in your head is a fictionalized life. I said that one guy, the way I brought it up, was that one guy explained the fact, or, well, he explained the fact of why he had such a dearth of fiction in his literary diet, and he said, no, 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 I don't need to read about the fictionalized life of made-up characters. I'm living one in my own head constantly. And it doesn't seem at first blush to be true, because again, the life that's being led in your head, the thoughts will say, well, it is, it's not fictionalized, it's about me. How could it be fictional? And I said, that, you know, I wouldn't argue it, and you wasted time arguing it with yourself. You either have to realize what I'm saying or not. It certainly is about you. That is, it's about your body, the person passing under your name. But the life itself is fictionalized. On the way home, I thought, does everyone, if you don't know, a Romana clay is a French term, a literary term, that means that whereas an author has taken actual events and actual characters and turned them into a fictionalized event. And for anybody, to, of course, it's got to be fairly transparent or someone's got to say, wait a minute, all he's doing is writing the life of Charles de Gaulle and he called it something else. That is, for a, for a critic, a reviewer, to decide, well, this is not a, an absolute piece of fiction. This is Raymond Clay. So somebody, it had to be that somebody realized what was going on. Uh, I could have said that that was closer to it than just calling it fictionalized. But that's not it. It's a contrarium. I had to make up my own term. I thought about it. I started to just call it anti, but that kind of clashed with the French terms already in there, so I added a Latin term, which I guess was really sophisticated to me instead of, <laughs> but anyway, contrarium Romana clay. Think about it. The opposite of a Romana clay. That's what it is. Refreshing memory of a Romana clay is actual events and characters presented under the guise of fiction. What we do is just, is just the opposite. <laughs> We take fictionalized events and characters and present them to ourselves, to our thoughts, under the guise, well, this is actually happening. <laughs> That's a whole new mystical system for you. A new mystical way. Contrarium Romana Clay. Now I'm sitting here wondering, why in the hell did I go all the trouble? I had to go look in a book to even get the right Latin tense of contrarium. Why did I pull out and stick a Latin term with a French term? What is the French term for opposite? Probably close to contra. Well, contraire. What am I talking about? <laughs> but is that the right, would that be the right form? Contraire is. Oh, shit, don't get me off on these. <laughs> contraire, Romana Clay. <laughs> I still, if you're going to be our kind of people, testosterone-driven, it's anti-Romano Clay. <laughs> but later, the guy, that, the guy, this guy, obviously already bought what I'd said or thought about that his life was fictionalized, he realized it was actually the reverse of Romano Clay. And for the instant, he realized that... No. 
Well, that was the end of that paragraph. And this same guy says he also found it of interest, here's his follow-up, that in the intellectual world of man, there is no word for this idea, which is just what I said, that there is no, not to my knowledge, there is no such term as the opposite of a Romana clay, just what I described. Because even if you don't know the term, you, you are obviously aware of the fact that this is done constantly. Not just in books, but in movies and everywhere. It's been done throughout history. All kinds of satirists have been put to the stake for producing Romana clays, whereas the king, the tyrant, would, would even if he was too dumb, somebody would come to him and say, do you realize this story that everybody's laughing about, about the little pig that died and went to heaven? Do you realize that that's about you? He goes, get out of here. They go, no. Anyway, Romana clays have been around as long as there's just about been history. But how about this? Think about it. There is no term for an opposite. Of course, you realize when I say there's no term, then you would, that would lead you to say, well, no one's ever considered it. Has anyone ever taken a fictionalized thing and presented it as otherwise? In other words, the Romano Clay of taking actual events and characters and presenting them in the guise of fiction, reverse that. You don't find that interesting? I find things like that very interesting. It's more interesting than 10 years worth of movies or television or magazines or books. Why is there no such thing as the reverse of a Romano Clay? Why is there no term for it? Of course, after that, if you get good, then you go, well, does it occur? That I'm not going to comment. I'd ruin it for you. It's enough to get you started. Why is there no term for that? Of course, you really get good. Well, there's not much to do with this, but after that, it always hits me that, wait a minute, there's even a better question. Not only why is there no term for it, but why has nobody ever noticed it? That's when, of course, I just have to go in the other room by myself and, you know, kiss my hand and look in the mirror and think, you know, if it wasn't for me, I wouldn't know shit like this. There's nowhere else to get it. I don't know what's going to happen if I ever die. I don't know where, who will I turn to then? Well, I don't want to get the blues. Page 14, I would say that the historical frequency of those seeking the goal to withdraw from life and to physically live alone is a reflection, not that they understand it, of the desire to internally, in their head, live alone. No longer under the shadowy illusion of two, but in the lighted reality of uno. Back in your head alone, just you and nobody else but you. Tell you something else. When you're not momentarily tied up in the sensation in your head of two, that two being jerry-rigged from the one, life is not seen as being sequential. Headline, the curious story of a curious enterprise. Speaking to the business reporter of an unnamed publication, the man said, quote, Our company's greatest achievement is that no one has ever heard of us, and year after year we accomplish nothing. Is this not a curious story? And if you agree, then that's proof that you've never been involved with the effort of trying to awaken. 
I was waiting for one laugh. Again, all I can do is conclude that either you understood it and didn't find it funny, or you didn't understand it. Because you understood it, never mind. The odd story of a certain man. One certain man spent a small fortune hiring various subcontractors to find and eliminate a noise in his house that was driving him to distraction, but with no success. He finally realized that what he was hearing was a noise in his own ear. Is this not an odd story? And if you think so, it shows that you've never tried to achieve enlightenment. Nobody, see that's the same story as the previous one that I had to comment. Nobody likes the idea of this desire to awaken, the annoyance with this sorry state of being deluded, living partially in the dark, being asleep. Turns out to be a noise in your own ear. You know what the noise is? It's that voice every time it says, I. And it seems to be that it is separate from thought. Do you think, well, I'm having a thought. I had that thought. Let me think about this. No need to, sir. Not going anywhere. Not as long as you believe that. Headline, life. Dateline, Charleston. When asked why he laughs, one man replied, because it's there. I didn't know. Originally, see, I tried to give everyone credit because originally, I'm going to tell you, the headline of that was, life, could it be like a mountain? And that would have been the headline, so you get your prime. And then, this one man, when he was asked why he laughs, he replied, because it's there. But I decided to give it a shot and see if anyone made any sense out of it anyway. It seems very important that you be able to make literary sense out of something. <laughs> well, until next time, uh, here, would you hold this? <laughs> Beg your pardon. That concludes this talk. Be sure to visit us at jancox.com, where you can search through 3,000 talks for topics of interest, or just leave us a message.